The Guardian. How are you today? Good, I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Very good. So, yeah, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Yeah. This is kind of strange. It is, isn't it? <laughs> but it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? It's probably been a while since you had a spontaneous and unpredictable interaction. A chat with a stranger. All right. Oh. Hello, Sarah. Nice to, nice to digitally meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you as well. <laughs> What's yeah. your question about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, um... You're hearing the voices of study participants, people who agreed to meet with someone they've never met over video chat. During the pandemic, most of us have managed to keep in contact with close friends and family. But what about the people whose phone numbers you don't have? The barista you used to talk to, the woman who catches the same train each morning, your colleague who also uses the microwave to heat up lunch, or that random stranger who couldn't help sparking up a conversation with you in a queue. What if these exchanges can give us something our closest relationships can't? Are we missing something from our lives when we're no longer pushed into conversations with people we barely know? It just puts us in a good mood. So study after study has showed that we really enjoy having these moments of connection. I'm Linda Geddes, and this is Science Weekly. Hi, Gillian. How are you? Hi, I'm fine. Good morning. Uh, how are things where you are? Well, it's nice and sunny today and lots of spring flowers coming up, so I'm feeling happy. <laughs> Yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? I'm I'm down in Bristol and I walked through the park this morning and all the plum blossom is out in the park. Oh, and it's wow, really, nice. Isn't it? To better understand how living without these kinds of social interactions during the pandemic could be affecting us, I spoke to someone who loves talking to strangers. My name's Dr. Gillian Sandstrom. I'm a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Essex. And for the last 10 years, I've been studying minimal social interactions. So looking at mostly talking to strangers. We have all kinds of connections, right? From close friends all the way through to that random person we at least used to see every day at the train station. Perhaps you could start by running through some of the types of relationships that people can have. The most minimal kind is a stranger. That's someone that you've never met before and presumably will never see again. Although sometimes they turn into the next kind of relationship, which is what I call a weak tie. That term was coined by a sociologist back in the 70s. And I think that means a whole bunch of different things. So one sort of baby step up from a stranger is an acquaintance, someone that you maybe don't even know their name, but you have this mutual recognition. And for me, this started because I had a relationship like this with a lady who sold hot dogs. So I walked past this hot dog stand every day when I was on campus doing my master's degree in Canada. And somehow I just developed this relationship with her where we would smile at each other and wave. And I don't think we ever really talked. I didn't ever even buy a hot dog. I feel kind of bad about that now. But I realized that this relationship that I had with her really made me feel good. And it made me feel sort of anchored in the place that I was in. And then, of course, there's all kinds of other types of weak ties too, where we know people and a bit better and maybe even talk to them every day, but still not the kind of people that we'd necessarily, you know, invite over for dinner or go out for drinks with. Yeah. And actually, I feel like I've got one of these weak ties, I guess. It's a guy who who walks his dog around our neighborhood and his dog used to pee right outside our 
right on our path <laughs> until my husband said something to him. But he kind of sits at the end of the road each day and we've kind of got to kind of acknowledging each other. And now we sort of smile and say hello. Lovely. <laughs> you know, that's been carrying on through the pandemic and it feels like quite a nice thing that roots you in your community. Exactly. Yeah. I think yeah. people with dogs are especially easy to talk to if you're a dog lover. So um, I'm always approaching dogs and probably talking to them before I talk to their humans. But <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, you know, during the pandemic, we haven't had so many chances to interact with people. What are we missing out on by not talking to strangers and acquaintances as much as we usually would? First of all, I guess maybe most importantly is that it just puts us in a good mood. So study after study has showed that we really enjoy having these moments of connection. It's a mood benefit, but also the connection itself is really important because humans have this fundamental need for belonging. We only thrive with our in our mental health and our physical health if we feel sort of integrated in our communities and we feel like a sense of belonging and being needed by other people. And so I think it's really great that even these tiny little interactions with the dog walker or the hot dog lady can go some way to helping us feel socially connected. But I think one thing, one thing that I feel like I'm missing on with these kind of conversations during the pandemic, I think they bring a sense of novelty and a little kind of spark of something, you know, unusual to your day. And that's because the people that we're really close to, we, we kind of already know what they're going to say. We know what they like. We're not surprised by them very often. I've learned so many things from talking to strangers, and it's really broadened my perspective and exposed me to things that I probably never would have thought about. Do you think these interactions can change how we view the world? I don't know. What I do know is that people, when they're talking to people that they don't know so well, they act differently. They're on their best behavior in a way. They do what psychologists call self-presenting. My PhD advisor did some research on this, and she was motivated by the fact that her boyfriend pointed out that even when she was grumpy at home, they would go out and socialize and she would be you know, happy and cheerful and she would show this different face to the people that they were talking to. And he found that really interesting. And so I think that's true. When we're talking to strangers or people we don't know well, we're, we're kind of on our best behavior. And I think we don't talk about the contentious things so much. And I think that maybe is a good thing because those are the things that make us feel like we're so different from other people. And the chit chat and sort of, you know, just talking about what's going on in your day and how have you experienced life? That's the kind of stuff that makes us feel connected. And that's what I feel like we need more of is connection, not these divisions that we get when we focus in on the topics that divide us rather than our fundamental human nature that connects us all. Do you think it can bring out different parts of our personalities? I think it lets us try out different aspects of ourselves. And that might be especially important for younger people who are trying to sort out their identity. As far as personality goes, I mean, one thing I'd like to emphasize is that I'm very much an introvert. <laughs> I really want to make sure that anybody hearing this doesn't think, oh, well, this is just an extrovert talking. And for, for you extroverts, this is an easy thing to do. It is not necessarily an easy thing to do. There are skills that you can get better at it. Practice really does make a difference and makes it easier to approach people and talk to people. And I think if you do it a few times, you learn that actually it's really fun and you can get better at it. But I don't think you have to be an extrovert. And I think in some ways it actually suits introverts like me because it's low stakes, you know, that you can just have a little chat and then walk away. 
I was talking to my husband. He's like, so you're going to talk to a stranger? I was like, yes, I'm going to talk to a stranger. His name is Tony. And he's like, that's weird. And I was like, nah, I guess so. I mean, it's just like talking to anyone else. Um, You did a study connecting strangers via video call during the pandemic, which we've been hearing some clips of during this podcast. Can you tell me a bit more about this study? What did you do? Um, What were you investigating? I was asking about, you know, what, what if you talk to a stranger right now online? How do you think that would go? And then at the end of this survey that I had people fill out, I said, well, would you like to actually talk to a stranger right now? And the majority of people said, yeah, sure. And this was during the first lockdown, like March and April last year. And so I connected people and they did send me recordings. And what we found in this study was just like I usually do, people's predictions before the conversation were more pessimistic than they needed to be. So people enjoyed the conversations more than they expected. The conversations were much longer than people expected. So they predicted that they would talk to someone for about 14 minutes that's one four. And they actually talk to people for an average of 40 minutes. So four zero. So that's a huge difference. And the thing I'm most excited about is that we actually also before and after this conversation asked people about their sense of trust in other people. And their feeling that just people in the world are kind and fair And both of those improved. So after having one conversation with a stranger, people reported feeling a greater sense of trust in others and feeling that people are just good and kind and fair. It's lovely talking to you. Yeah, it's nice being able to talk to a random person while we're in social isolation. Well, this has been lovely talking to you. Yes, I'm glad we got to talk. Thank you so much for reaching out and making it happen. No it was right. really a pleasure meeting you, and I, I wish you well. I wish you well. Did any of the people carry on talking to the stranger after that call? I don't know for sure, but I definitely had several emails from people saying, you know, we weren't sure if it was allowed for the study, but we'd really like to talk to each other again. I actually ended up setting up some group calls and had a fair number of people come to those. So you've also done some research on a liking gap when talking to strangers. Can you explain what that is? Basically, the idea here is that when you talk to another person, you walk away not knowing how that conversation went. And that's because you can't. You can't see what's in other people's heads, can you? But I can because I've studied it. (laughs) And what we find is that if you and I have a conversation like we are right now, meeting for the first time, and we end the conversation and a researcher asks you, how did you, did you like talking to Jillian? You'd, you'd probably say, I'm hoping you'd say, oh yes, Jillian was very nice. I like talking to her. But if the researcher asked you, you know, what do you think Jillian thought about you? You're actually probably likely to say, oh no, I don't think she liked me as much as I liked her. And that's just a function of this sort of negative voice that we have in our head that we listen to. So, you know, we have this conversation and then the negative voice says, oh, why did you say that? Or, oh, I should have said that. Or, you know, what if they didn't understand? What if they misinterpreted that? So we really get stuck in this loop inside of our head, listening to this negative voice. And this liking gap, that's just the term we use to explain this phenomenon that actually people like you more than you think. There's a gap between how much you like them and how much you think they like you, and you're wrong. People do like you more than you think. 
So it sounds like we're all lacking a bit of self-confidence. Exactly. You know, I often get asked about tips. If I did want to go and talk to a stranger, how would I do it? And I think the tip that resonates the most for people is just be brave. Just think of that liking gap and know that you're making too much of it. You're worrying too much and just go for it. And what about the benefits of weak ties in our work life, where we tend to come across a lot of these sorts of interactions? You know, people talk about the water cooler moment and things like that. Yeah, well, a sociologist named Mark Granovetter coined the term weak tie back in the 70s. And he did a study way back then showing that people were more likely to find a new job through their weak ties as opposed to their strong ties, which I think was a little bit surprising because obviously you'd expect your close friends and family to be the ones that would want to help you and make the biggest efforts to help you find a new job. But the problem is that you only have so many of them. So that limits your opportunities. And weak ties just expose you to different opportunities and different information. And one thing that I find really interesting, another piece of research, looked at creativity in the workplace. This feels connected because, again, it's about sort of being exposed to more information and more novelty. So there was a study that found that people at work are judged by their supervisors to be more creative when they have more weak ties at work. And so, again, I think that's just the idea that, you know, if you're talking to lots of people in different parts of the business, that maybe you're making connections between different things that others can't make because they just don't have that information. Are you missing talking to strangers as much as you did before the pandemic or are you finding ways to do it anyway? Definitely finding ways to do it. So, I mean, I think we all have people coming to our doors for various reasons, you know, to deliver groceries or pizza or packages. So I talk to those people and I try to go for a walk almost every day. So I'm always finding people to talk to. And, you know, it's not always a chat. Sometimes it's just, you know, smiling at people and and waving. And those little things can really make a difference too. And I feel like, I don't know, I feel almost like an obligation because I know how much that can mean to someone just to have that little moment because it meant a lot to me recently. I had a really grumpy day and I was walking in the park and and this lady was pushing a pram and and she smiled at me. And, you know, I'm not used to being on the receiving end. I'm used to being the one who's maybe trying too hard to sort of wave and connect with other people. So this lady with the pram just reminded me of how good it feels to be on the receiving end. Do you have any favorite stranger interactions that you can think of? So many. One of my favorites was on the tube in London. It was in the middle of the day, so it wasn't too busy on the tube. And I I turned to this lady and I said, you know, how's your day going today? And she kind of gave this noncommittal answer. And but then she looked at me and she said, how's your day been? And uh, I had just had an exciting morning. So I told her about what I had been doing. And she said, well, actually, I've just been to the GP and I found out I'm pregnant. So I, I was literally the, like the third person in the world to know that she was pregnant. <laughs> and, you know, I, it was such a cool moment because I thought this lady's going to go back to work and not tell anybody, right? Because we generally wait a few months to make sure everything's okay before we tell people. And yet, because I'm a stranger, she was able to tell me. So we, we even hugged it out on the tube and it was just such a special moment for me. Oh, that's, that's such a nice story. So go on then, give us your top tips for how to strike up a good conversation with a stranger. 
Well, I always laugh at that one because I think people actually know how to start a conversation. I actually personally find ending a conversation much more difficult. But I think the classic way to start a conversation is to talk about the weather. And if you think of that more broadly, it's just really commenting on something that we have in common. I'm often tapping into my curiosity, really. So I'll I'll ask a question. Once I was at the train station and I saw a woman with a hard hat, and that's not a particularly common sight. So I said, hey, what's with the hard hat? And she explained that she was going into London to set up the stage for Britain's Got Talent. So that was pretty cool. That's probably my biggest trick is just being observant and asking questions, tapping into my curiosity. Julian Sandstrom, it's been fantastic speaking to you. Stranger that was and now contact. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. It's been really fascinating. Thank you for giving me a chance to talk about my very favourite thing. One of the things Gillian mentioned really got us thinking. Why is it so hard to finish a conversation? During the pandemic, most of us will have had to awkwardly try and end a phone call or wrap up a chat on Zoom while desperately clicking at the leave button. Especially difficult when we've really got nowhere else to be. And when we do get to chat in person, why do so many of us end up lying to get away from a conversation? making up toilet trips, the need for another drink, or perhaps even that someone is calling our mobiles. Luckily, Gillian knew a researcher who has been asking exactly these questions and suggested we get in touch. found a way to end them without saying, I don't want to talk to you anymore. So people would say things like, well, do you have anything else to say? <laughs> or they'd say, well, do you think we should go get the guy? The guy being the experimenter who would come back to, to move them on to the next part of the conversation. Hi, my name is Adam Mastriani. I'm a PhD candidate at Harvard University. Adam has recently published a study looking at when conversations end and whether they finish when we actually want them to. We were curious why Adam was keen to look at this phenomenon in the first place. This story may be anachronistic at this point, but the way I remember it, I first had this idea when I was at Oxford. So I was there for two years before I came here for a PhD. And I was putting on my bow tie to go to a party because all parties at Oxford are black tie. And I thought to myself, you know, this sucks. I don't want to go to this party because I know at some point I'm going to be talking to somebody and I'm going to want to move on and there won't be any polite way of doing that. And then I realized, wait, what makes me think I'm so special? The people that I'm talking to, they're just me as well. So they probably also want to end. And so what if we're both trapped in this conversation because we mistakenly think the other person wants to keep going? That was our hypothesis going into the study. And we do find that that happens, but also the opposite happens, that both people end wanting to continue in part because they think the other person wants to go. So that was what got me interested in the first place. This is an experience most of us have had being in a conversation and not really knowing how to get out of it, or wondering whether the other person is desperate to escape as well. But seeing as this is an activity, at least before COVID, we do every day, why can it be so difficult to end a conversation? It's really hard to wrap up a conversation for two reasons, or there's two things that could go very wrong at the end of a conversation. One is that I trap you that I keep you talking for longer than you want to. And that's not kind because I'm supposed to let you go do the things that you want to do. The other possibility is that you trap me, 
and I'm stuck talking to you longer than I want to. So whenever we walk away from a conversation, there's always the possibility that we're signaling to the other person that we don't want to talk to them when they wanted to talk to us, or that we do want to talk to them more than they want to talk to us. It's just hard to get around the fact that the fact that we are parting ways feels like something has gone wrong. And so I think this is exactly why a lot of the way conversations end is by people saying, well, I have to go. If it were up to me, I would still be here. But the circumstances of the universe have conspired against us, and I'm being called away. I think people definitely do not want to be rude. And the funny thing is, we find this not just in conversations between strangers, where we use words like rudeness and politeness. We also find this in conversations between intimates. So people speaking to their spouses, to their kids, to their friends, even with someone you know really well and care a lot about, you don't want to signal to them that you're bored by them and want to go do something else, nor do you want to bore them or trap them. The challenging social interplay of having a conversation, not wanting to be rude and give signals that you're bored or ready to end the chat, means that we tend to hide how we feel, making it very difficult for the other person to read our feelings. This isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's probably better to stay in a conversation longer than you'd like rather than upset a friend or even a stranger. But it does make ending that chat tricky. It'd be very easy for you to tell your partner that you're done talking to them if you actually wanted to. The skillful bit is getting them to realize that you're done without ever saying it or trying to figure out if the other person is done without them ever saying it. I think that underlies this coordination failure where you're not really going to tell me what you want. I'm not really going to tell you what I want. And because of that, neither of us is going to get what we want. It's as if if we were trying to pick a place for lunch, I wanted Italian food and you wanted to go to a Brazilian steakhouse, but I don't know what you want. You don't know what I want. It's going to be very hard for us to pick a place for lunch. We might end up going to a place that neither of us wants to only because we weren't willing to be honest about what we wanted. To investigate quite how much we struggle to end conversations when we actually want to, Adam and his colleagues conducted two studies. First, around 800 participants did an online survey about their most recent conversation with someone they knew well, like a friend or family member. In the second study, participants were paired with a stranger and asked to talk about anything they liked for at least one minute, but for no longer than 45 minutes. In both studies, everyone was asked whether the conversation went on for longer or shorter than they would have liked. They were also asked to estimate when they thought their partner would have wanted to end. What we found in both studies was the same. People told us that their conversation ended at a time that was very different from the time they wished they would have ended. It wasn't that the conversations on average went on longer than people wanted to or not as long as people wanted to. They just ended at a time that was different, both longer or shorter than people wanted them to. And this was both true for people talking to the people they know really well, and it was true for people meeting each other for the first time. We find that in only 2% of conversations do both people say it ended exactly when I wanted it to. And in only 29% of conversations does even one person say that. In 70% of conversations, both people are saying, I wanted more, I wanted less, or one person wants more, or one person wants less. And we found that that happens for two reasons. One is that People wanted to talk for very different amounts of time. So it's impossible for everybody to get what they want when people want different things. And that creates a problem, right? What do we do when I want to keep going and you want to stop or I want to go on a little bit, but you want to go on a lot? 
And our third finding was that people are really bad at knowing when the other person wants to go. So however they want to address the problem of wanting different things, it's very hard for them to do that because they don't know the fact that they want different things. So when people guessed when their partner wanted to leave, they were off by about half of the length of the conversation, which really creates a problem when we're trying to come to a compromise, both because people want different things and because people don't know what the other person wants that caused people to not leave conversations when they wanted to. I don't think it's that people are bad at picking up on cues. I think it's that we're good at hiding the cues. However, that's all against the backdrop that people actually really enjoy their conversations. And so there's a possibility that this coordination failure is a failure on one level, but is supporting a success on another level, which is that people actually like conversations quite a bit. In fact, they like them more than they anticipate. Other research has found that. We find in our own studies that when we ask people, think back to when you heard the instructions for this study, how long did you think you were going to talk? People tell us, even knowing how long they did talk, they tell us, I only expected to talk for about half as long as we did. And so people get into these, they have a nice time. They just don't realize, I think, under the hood that there's all this mismatch and miscoordination. And it's possible that that's all for our benefit. It's not necessarily good to know when the other person wants to leave, just like it's not good to share every single thought that you have with the person that you're talking to. And so that's one of the things that I'm interested to find out next, whether this coordination failure is supporting a success at a different level. And if in fact, we're sort of all better off because we maintain this polite fiction, we all get out of a conversation without getting what we want, but maybe that is to our mutual benefit. So what do these results mean for how we should have and end conversations. It would be helpful if we had found something like, you know, people always overestimate or people always underestimate. And therefore, the thing that you should do is adjust upward or adjust downward. Instead, we found that people are just really inaccurate, which unfortunately isn't the most actionable piece of information because you can't just make yourself less inaccurate, at least not by adjusting upward or adjusting downward. Instead, I think the thing to take away from these findings is that you don't know. And it's really hard to know when the other person wants to leave, in part because we're all hiding our desires because we don't want to be rude to the people that we're talking to. And if anything, I would say it's better to leave people wanting more than to leave people wanting less. You can always have an additional conversation. You can never have less conversation. And so if you have to err on either side, I would err on the side of ending a little earlier and then talking to somebody again. Now, we found out that Adam was on what has become an iconic episode of a cooking programme in the UK. Come dine with me. In it, people go into each other's houses and take it in turns in hosting dinner parties, then give their fellow hosts a score. In Adam's episode, things ended pretty badly, so much so that it spawned endless internet jokes and memes. We wanted to know if it was the worst conversation he's ever experienced. So I was on that episode of Come Dine With Me, where Peter was his name, threw us all out of his house at the end. And yes, that was one of the worst conversations that I've been a part of. In fact, I wasn't even really a part of it. I was mostly a bystander. You won, Jane. Oh, my God. Enjoy the money. I hope it makes you very happy. Dear Lord, what a sad little life, Jane. You ruined my night completely so you could have the money but I hope now you spend it on getting some lessons in grace and decorum because you have all the grace of a reversing dump truck without any tires on (laughs) I think we could all agree or at least all of us on the show could agree that that conversation would have been better off 
if it had ended sooner. The producers disagreed. I think the producers th- think it ended exactly when it should have ended. If anyone wants to go and find his episode, by the way, it's series 37. Yes, 37, episode one. That's it from us today. Thanks to Gillian and Adam for speaking to us on the podcast. Hopefully they've both inspired you to go out and start, as well as end, conversations with strangers. In a COVID safe way, of course. My colleague Natalie Grover also wrote about Adam's study, so if you want to find out more, do head to the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. As ever, if you've got a question about the pandemic you'd like us to explore on the podcast, do email us on scienceweekly at theguardian.com. So, uh, I guess, bye then. I I think my favorite way to end a conversation is to say something like, it's been really great talking to you. To end on a high note and to say, this is really good. I liked this. I like you. Nothing is going wrong by us leaving each other's presence. It's just that in the course of human events, sometimes two people have to stop talking to each other. And that is what has happened right now. Thank you so much for your time. Goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.